Welcome to the Growth Hacking Culture Podcast. I'm your host, Ivan Palomino. This podcast is about thought-provoking ideas to scale up and growth hack performing and human-centric work cultures. My guests are experts on mindsets, skills, and science behind work cultures. I hope you enjoy this episode. I don't really want to jinx it, but there is a, a likelihood of an economical recession and that is very high. But we are not anymore in 2008. What worked then or was allowed back then may not work for employees today. And the reason is that they have been like a leap jump in the evolution of the expectations at work. The pandemic has made that the psychological needs of employees are more than ever visible. And the balance between the tough calls versus the human needs will make companies survive this time. It will not be like the last time that it was all about money. But that is going to be tough to learn quickly because of the uniqueness of this moment. In this episode, I have invited Ron Carucci to discuss human leadership in times of financial crisis. Let me tell you a little bit more about Ron. If you haven't heard about him, he's the co-founder and managing partner of Navalent. Uh, he has been working with CEOs and ex executives, helping them transformational change. Uh, this company, in fact, has a big chunk of 1,500 CEOs in the, in the pool of customers. He's also the best-selling author of eight, yes, you have heard, eight di different books where he's the, uh, that are bestsellers. For example, the latest one, To Be Honest, and another one called The Rising uh, to Power. He is a very popular contributor in the Harvard Business Review. By the way, I had the chance to read a couple of them. And he has been contributing in several magazines like Fort Fortune, CEO Magazine, Inc., Business Decider. My God, he's everywhere. But I wanted to first thanks Ron for being my guest. Uh, Ron, before we start, I wanted to understand a little bit more about your transition from the corporate world to the world of helping CEOs transform. How was the calling? Was it a calling? Was it the purpose? Or was it like identifying a big gap that was happening in, uh, in the corporate world? Well, Ivan, first of all, thanks so much for having me. It's great to be with you. Um, I, I, my, I've spent my whole career working with leaders. In my early parts of my career, I spent time inside companies working with leaders and helping them become stronger leaders and shaping culture and changing organizations. But I learned uh, through some hard lessons that telling the truth as an insider can be difficult sometimes. Mm. And so, uh, and early in my career, I wasn't always the most diplomatic. And so uh, I, uh, through some hard lessons, found out that if I was going to live out my passion for organizations, it was gonna have to be by not being part of one. And so I found out that the same behaviors that got me into some trouble inside companies got me rewarded well outside companies. And so I, I learned, you know, 30 years ago, 25 years ago, that um, the best use of my voice and the best contribution I could make would, would be as an outsider. Uh, and so that's, uh, I began my consulting career then. Ron, in fact, I have noticed because I had, I was going through some of your books and the way you say things is kind of like the naked truth. So you you have 
you you keep on in fact saying things as uh, as they are and this is quite valuable because still there is a lot of authors that may round the corners about what is required in the workplace or what is required in, in order to be uh, a successful leader and you are not hiding so that's that's super good talking about this this the topic that were uh, of today how can we if what would you advise to leaders to better prioritize cost cutting when crisis is on its way? How can they potentially prioritize this, uh, what to do? Well, I think part of the challenge for many leaders in those moments is that they're fearful and, they're, and they feel shame. They feel the, the, the excesses of excessive of growth that they, they, didn't, they hadn't earned. Uh, or investments that were probably not well advised. And so now they have to deal with all this bloat. They already know that cost cutting decisions are gonna be hard, so they hide. Um, and they and they make incredibly irrational and short-sighted decisions. Um, mm -hmm. And in, in so doing, they actually harm the strategies of their organizations. Just because you have to trim costs doesn't mean you should abandon your strategy. And so what we advise leaders to do is to make sure that when you're having to narrow your, your, your investments or your spending, um, do it in the service of your strategy. You know, unless there's some competitive or external reason that tells you um, your strategy is no longer viable, which, you know, a, a, a tight economic market shouldn't be that. Because mm -hmm. if that's the case, it means your strategy wasn't right to begin with. Um, and so how can you engage your organization in trimming costs in the way in the, in the service of doubling down on your strategy and, and getting rid of all the superfluous activities or things you shouldn't have been doing and really honing your organization into the strategy? So you, you have mentioned something that is quite important, <clears throat> engaging the organization on kind of contribute to the decision making. Uh, but sadly enough, often the story of we are protecting employees uh, comes as a reason for taking decisions between just the big guys without the involvement of other, the rest of us. Uh, according to you, what are the risks of this so-called best practice? Because really, it is a best practice because people are continuously repeating, we need to protect our employees, they don't have to worry, so they don't get involved. <laughs> well, uh, what I'd say, Ivan, is just because it's common doesn't make it best. Yeah. Uh, it, it's hardly a best practice at all. The real best practice is um, engaging the people who have to live with the decisions uh, once they're made, and, and who you need uh, as evangelists to help carry it out, especially the who have to live with the pain. Um, 99% of the time when we encourage our executive leaders to engage those who have a much better view of the work and where cuts can happen, um, they actually make harder decisions and usually cut more. Um, mm -hmm. And they do that because one, they don't want to do it again. And two, because they know where the fat is. And as an executive, by definition, because of the altitude at which you sit, you cannot see where the bloat really is. Um, and so your your criteria for what you would choose to de-emphasize or eliminate, especially especially when that includes people, um, you're 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 not going to be thinking about your best long-term talent. You're not going to be thinking about capabilities you need to come out of a recession or come out of a, a slump. Um, you're going to be thinking about what what's 
What's the easiest decision to make that keeps you out of the least, the most amount of pain mm. uh, personally? And so leaders, before they, they, they enter the, any of the work, they've got to deal head on with the hard emotions, the guilt, the shame, the fear, the anxiety. Most leaders are not cavalier about this. They don't, they don't, they're not thinking, oh, just cut 10,000 jobs, who cares? They, they really do suffer with the stress of these choices. Um, some of that suffering is their own self-imposed suffering because they recognize that the growth was irresponsible to begin with. That's all we've heard from the tech sector in the last year is I got it wrong. I shouldn't have grown. I overinvested during the pandemic. Well, you had to know you were doing that, right? There's, you weren't just guessing and you just you chose not to care. You chose to, to leverage the pandemic or leverage the season when people needed your platforms. And, um, you know, if anybody wildly misguided you that somehow that level of growth was going to be sustainable on the other side of this, then you should fire them because that was ill-advised. But, but on some level, you already knew. And so now you have to deal with, you know, and, and I, what, what troubles me, Yvonne, is when, they, when these executives come on screen and apologize. Sorry, it's on me. I got it wrong. Uh, that's nice. And now how big are your severance packages? Hmm. How, how, if you have to part ways with thousands of employees, how, how much is your remorse showing up in how you part ways? Because uh, your economic livelihood is just fine. And so if you're really sorry, you know, take care of them for six months or a year. But 10 weeks, 12 weeks, you're not, you're not that sorry. Exactly. So that doesn't happen very often where people reflect on <laughs> they because it might be that they do it for as a political action to show remorse. And in fact, they don't feel it. In fact, that the real thing that is happening in their brains, it might be that I was told to do so. The shareholders told me uh, to do so, to reduce at, at that amount or to expect a growth that it was imposs uh, impossible. That's that's the sad uh, the sad part of of a of a financial crisis, and we have seen and heard. I still remember the example of two thousand and eight with so many people saying, "I'm sorry," but most of them are still there, and many of them didn't did not decrease their their uh, their packages. Now, <clears throat> there is <laughs> the, the the part about dealing with people, so trimming the organization, shaking the tree to see who is contributing or not to the value of the, uh, of the company. During financial crisis, there is a lot of layoffs. How should, what is the right way to do it? If, if you have, it, how can you decide of the, of the value of a person? Is there a way um, to do it in an optimal way? Well, you know, first of all, recognizing that there's a long emotional healing process to come, right? When you rupture the trust of an organization by taking, removing members of it, um, you have to accept that there's going to be long-term, long-term consequences to that. You know, you just can't get around it. Um, what's particularly cruel is for people to use a reduction in force as an opportunity to do performance management, right? Let's take out our lowest performers. That's cruel. If you hadn't been managing their performance up till now, this is not the time for that, right? If you have to cut bodies, you have to objectively look at your strategy and look at what is your competitive work 
What is your enabling work? And what is your necessary work? You know, the work that keeps the lights on. And your, 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 the vast amount of your cuts ought to come from the necessary work. They should not come from your enabling work or your competitive work, the work that sets you apart from your competitors. Um, it, it, if you need to manage performance of, of Lloyd performing people, do that. But don't, don't tell them, we'll, you're, we're eliminating your job because of the recession, when the fact of the matter is they were terrible and you just were too lazy to deal with it. People see right through that. And what you're doing in that moment is you are deeply impairing the trust of your culture, right? Everybody will understand that you lied, well, well that you made something up, that we know why they were on the list. Uh, and that trust doesn't automatically restore on the other side of, of, the, of the riff. Now you have months and months, if not years of work to do to re restore that trust. Because <clears throat> you just broke a major covenant or contract with your employees. You took them out on in large scale. And you have survivor guilt. You have survivor distrust. You have your own shame. Um, I mean, how many CEOs are we seeing in these horrible videos being completely rejected, you know, by, by the world and being made fun of and mocked for the silly um, fake tier apologies for how hard this is for them. This is not about you. If you are taking people out of your workforce, this is about them. Nobody cares how hard it is for you and don't burden anybody else with, you know, how to you know, talk to your therapist or your coach, but don't tell the world, you know, how painful this is for you to have to do this. Nobody cares. Mm. <clears throat> I, I like this, uh what you say that rather than looking at performance, you look at your strategy, the roles that are necessary in order to drive you to the next, uh, to the next step. I, I really, I, I, I really find it quite, quite, quite insightful, the, the, this part. Um, so in terms of financial crisis, <laughs> by the way, it wasn't even during financial crisis, but let's think about the beginning of the pandemic. Um, the, training budgets were globally decreased by around 30% in the world. So the beginning of the pandemic, and suddenly they realized that they did a oops, because this, this was a time exactly where they needed to upskill people in, because a lot of change was happening, remote working, people with a lot of anxiety because they didn't know if they were going to keep the, uh, the jobs and leaders who were incapable of having empathy, which was the most necessary skill back uh, at that moment. Um, what would be the lines to don't cross in terms of people investment? Um, uh, do, do we put a line in, we keep on investing in trainings? Do we keep on investing in perks, in well-being support? Can we really save some money around the area of investing in the people during the financial crisis? Well, you know, here, here's what I'd ask you. You know, if your car's check engine light was on and you had to drive it, hmm. would you say, I can't afford the oil change? You wouldn't. You'd figure it out, right? You'd figure. So, so what is it makes you think that the, the, very, uh, the very thing that makes your organization work and sets it apart, your people, why would that be the place? you know, that you decided to withdraw investment from? What, what about 
you know, some of the, I, I, I laugh when I hear leaders say to me, here's my plans where we're going to press cuts. And of course the HR budgets are often both headcount and other things. Um, sure. Do we need free lunches and foosball? Get all, get rid of all that. You never should have had it in the first place because all you did was create entitlement. You created a workforce full of people who now expect, right? And so now, you know, three years later, when you say, hey, hey, come back to the office, they're like, no, I don't want to come back to the office. Well, what, what did you think that entitlement was going to go? Um, but you, there is so much fat in so many budgets that people just don't want to look at, right? They're the pet projects, you know, pet R&D efforts that are never going to see the light of day, innovations that, you know, I mean, listen, you can't stop innovation. You need to keep investing for the future of your portfolio. But there are probably some things in there that can be sunset for a year or two. Um, and probably there are some training and development activities that are, you know, nice to haves. Hmm. But to, to withdraw support from the people whose skills you're going to need when you have to grow again, whose commitment and focus you're going to need when it comes time to hit the gas pedal. Uh, you know, you just, you're just asking for, um, and, and look what happened, right? We had 16 million people quit their jobs last year. Um, and now leaders think, well, now in the fear of layoffs, people won't quit. Well, first of all, it's proving not to be true. And second of all, they may not quit and leave, but they'll quit and stay. Ooh, yes, exactly. So don't assume that somehow uh, fear of layoffs is a talent retention strategy. It, it's not. Hmm. <clears throat> it is common knowledge what you say about the, the analogy with the car in the, uh, in, uh, in the oil. But still, it is like a, a must do for many CEOs to cut the investment on people. And, and it looks like quite understandable <clears throat> for all of us, but we still do it. The, what could be the, the, the reason that they direct mainly the efforts of, of reducing the, the budgets in people rather than assessing, as you, you mentioned, a little bit of R&D here and there, a little bit of, of, of things that could be streamlined, they prefer to cut in the easier way in the human side of the of the business. Well, first of all, I don't think that's every, I don't think that's true of every CEO. Many CEOs that I know are intelligent and long-sighted um, and strategic about how they do their cross-cutting. Um, I think the CEOs that don't um, are either just, just dumb, they're just not that smart, um, or they're certainly, you know, their backgrounds have not prepared them for leadership. And so they're not, their, their orientation toward humans is just not there. Um, they probably have a, some technical background or some other background that makes them look at the world mm -hmm. through a lens of different kinds of um, priorities. Um, so they'll, they'll live to, they'll regret it. I mean, they'll go, when it, when it comes time, when those talents and skills are needed and they haven't got them, they'll go, oops. But, uh, you know, I, this is just a lack of intelligence that would mm. cause you to wield your cost cutting um, and, and, and a lack of self-honesty, really. Right. Because if you're looking at um, what's comfortable, what is comfortable or familiar to me when I look at my P&L, 
to extract from versus what's required by our strategy to grow. Yeah. What's required uh, of us to stay viable and competitively distinct? Well, a lot of times CEOs don't know the answers to those questions either. And so they don't have a screen for what is your competitive work? What is the work that if you invest a dollar in it, $5 comes in the door? If you don't really know what those competitive capabilities are, you, you see it all the same. Um, when we do, or whenever we change the organization, we just nip and tuck the org chart rather than really understand where the capabilities reside and where do I need to build them? So uh, there's a lot of people sitting in those C-suite roles who have not been prepared well to, to sit in those seats and to see the world, to see the enterprise uh, from a systemic, holistic point of view. And so they're just gonna grasp at straws. Mm -hmm. Ron, so the you mentioned several times about this emotional toll or the emotional price of dealing uh, as a CEO or as a leader uh, during a, a crisis. Um, can leaders really build trust in these times of financial crisis? And how can they do it? Well, you, you better. Uh, this is the time when you most need the trust of your people. And listen, today, earning and keeping people's trust is much harder than it ever used to be. Today, people start conversations cynical and yeah. <laughs> trustful and suspicious. If you used to be 50 years ago, if you were a leader, you, you, you were respected and trusted because you were a leader. Now, because you're a leader, you're not trusted. Um, you, you, you start in the red. And so, you know, uh, we did a, a, a 15 year longitudinal study of 3,200 leaders uh, to understand what is it that causes leaders to be trusted and what causes them to not be trusted. And we found very predictable factors that can tell you whether or not people would trust you. Um, certainly in the case of cost cutting, one of the most critical ones is transparency in how you make choices. If people can't decode or understand how it is you got to the outcomes you did, and it's a mystery to them, you are three and a half times more likely to have people distrust you, which means they'll, serve, they'll lie, cheat, and serve their own interests first. But if people, if they walk into a meeting uh, and the, the data they're hearing is balanced, the people in the room are exchanging different points of view, you know you'd be welcome to offer a point of view different than the one that's being offered in front of the room. You'd be safe to do that. That's transparency. Um, and now you're three and a half times more likely to have people trust you, which means they're gonna have people, that means you're gonna have people be honest with you. Listen, if you haven't got somebody coming into your office once or twice a week on a regular basis, saying something to you that makes you uncomfortable, you can be very confident your leadership sucks because they're telling somebody. Somebody, and, and if you think, Maybe you only lead six or eight people. And so you think, well, there isn't anything uncomfortable to say. Now you're stupid. Because if you think that even among six people in any given week, there aren't anything that isn't going sideways in some way that required your attention or that at least you, you should know about, then your head is in some other orifice. <laughs> because every night at the dinner table of people you lead, you are the topic of conversation. Stories about you are being told. If you don't know what stories are being told, you should want to know. 
you made me think that I have met exactly that type of profile of people where nobody there to come and contradict. Um, unfortunately, I had to go through in a, for a couple of years with this type of characteristics. Uh, you made me think about that person. <laughs> Anyways. We've all had that boss that nobody, you know, the, the, the naked emperor who doesn't know he has no clothes on. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, other than the, the financial backup, when we compare smaller companies versus bigger companies, it, do they have uh, these kind of smaller companies any advantages in times of uncertainty to, to deal with this financial crisis, to move around in terms of agility? Or is just like an urban legend that the startups are the ones who are a little bit more agile? <laughs> well, I think they're more agile because they're smaller and they're usually single categories or they're, you know, they have disadvantages too because they're usually chaotic and not, not organized well and you know, there's a lot of mayhem there. But I think, you know, your mid-cap companies, while they don't have all the resources a large company might have, they do have the ability to flex differently, you know, the, the, to, to realize change from top to bottom, to realize, to get messaging from top to bottom, to engage a workforce more holistically, you, you just, you have the smaller scale. There's an advantage there. Most small or mid-cap companies don't know how to take advantage of that scale. They're either trying to behave like big companies or they're just still behaving like a small company, right? I, 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 weekly, I see the classic story of the, the $100 million company trapped in the body of a $30 million organization. And they grew, but they didn't scale, right? And now um, the, um, the the pressures economically or competitively are exposing the fact that they're, you know, they did not scale in a way that was sustainable. And now they have to make up for that. That's usually the crisis that a mid-cap company will hit. But for the most part, they're able to, they can make that pivot a little bit easier than a, you know, a hundred billion dollar or, with you know eighty thousand employees could because that's just going to take years. Um, because of the fact that you are dealing with all, all these CEOs, and I mentioned at the beginning, a, a big bunch of your the CEOs are, are coming from Fortune five hundred companies. Is it the topic? Is it a, a trending topic in the discussions to discuss about the an upcoming financial crisis, or this is not the priority for them? today uh, you know I, I, it's hard to, it's hard to to have a one-size-fits-all answer to that question um i think the the, the best executives are, you know are focused on caring for their people i think they're focused on the health of their competitive um performance and those are not usually in fact most ceos don't, not only don't see those as mutually exclusive, they see those as, as two sides of the same coin. Um, I think the greater CEOs care deeply about their organizations and the health and the vibrancy of their people. Uh, and I think their performance shows that even when their performance uh, is struggling. Hmm. Over, the, over the arc of a longer story, you see that those companies typically prevail. Um, I, you know, I think there are CEOs who are fearful. Um, and when you act out of fear, you become performative, you become sort of a caricature of yourself. <laughs> yes. uh, and, and that's unfortunate because people see right through it. They'll nod in the right direction. They'll, you know, go along with you. But for the most part, 
uh, when you're not being authentic, um, people know. And then they have to fill the void, right? So there's something you're not showing me or telling me or being with me. I'm going to make up a reason for that. I'm going to make up what it is I'm missing. And usually it's that, that version of a story is way worse than if you had just been genuine to begin with. Um, this is the, the time where I have a, a question in, in two parts. The first part is a little bit of gossiping about people that you have CEOs or leaders that you have observed having the be the worst reactions in times of financial crisis, public figures that have done the worst. If you have a couple of examples on that side, and I want to have also some examples of these, the guys who really dealt correctly during a financial crisis. If, if something comes to your mind, that would be excellent because I'm well, really I think curious about that. All, you, all your listeners have to do is just Google the last six months, you know, famous videos of CEOs melting down on video. I mean, just the last year has just wrought the most embarrassing, just the most embarrassing moments. And what's painful is, you know, I mean, the, the most recent one is the Harmon Miller woman, you know, CEO of Miller, yeah. where she, and the problem was, you know, that was a 90 second video or 30 second video of a 90 minute meeting, right? So it's out of context. Um, it was not her greatest moment, to say the least. And now she will be forever judged by her worst moment as a leader. Mm. Uh, her apology was worse. She could have she could have done a much better job. I think she could have won respect that had she apologized in a better way, but she didn't. She missed so she missed two opportunities. Um, you know, and, and it's unfortunate, right? This was meant to be a private town hall meeting. It was not meant to be public. Um, and. How do leaders accept the fact that everything you do is on the Jumbotron? Everything. You have a, a megaphone strapped to your mouth 24-7. Everything you say is amplified, distorted, larger. And so how you manage, how you self-regulate, how you are prepared for scrutiny, um, most of which will be unfair uh, and unfounded. That's just part of a job. And you know, your defensive reaction, your angry reaction, your faked emotional reaction, Ugh. you know, all of those are signals to people that you are not being yourself, which means what you're saying to them is you shouldn't be yourself either. Hmm. If you're hiding part of you, that means they have to hide part of them. Every one of your employees comes to work every day, every one of them asking two questions. Do I matter? And do I belong? Your job as a leader is to make sure nobody ever wonders whether or not the answer to either of those questions is yes. And then when they know that, they, can, they are free then to go about performing the work as you ask them to. But when they doubt that one or both of those questions is yes, they go about the counterfeit of it, looking like they matter and looking like they belong. And all of the capacity they're putting into performing their mattering and belonging, which we've all seen that, but we, we all know what it looks like when somebody's trying to fake their mattering or overblow their belonging. All of that capacity is capacity not being devoted to their jobs. So if you're telling people by your own posture that I'm not sure I belong uh, and I'm having to you know, pull my power uh, as a CEO to make sure you know I matter, what you're telling them is that you're not sure they matter or belong either. Mm. Yes. And by 
by, by default, you are shaping a culture. That's the culture you're creating. Did, did you intend that? Probably not. Oh, well, but that's what happened. Does anyone specifically come to your mind, a CEO who did a great job during a financial crisis? A name, this time let's put a name. Hubert sure. Jolie. Hubert Jolie, uh, during his, all his years at Best Buy, you know, he inherited a company on the brink of bankruptcy, yeah. right? They were not competing well with the online retailers. Um, all of the conventional wisdom would have said, close doors, cut costs, shrink it. He did the opposite. He listened. He went into the stores. He watched employees with customers. He listened to their struggles. He listened to what made it hard for them to compete. They wanted to serve their customers. You know, he watched customers be in the store for half an hour, walk out empty-handed. He watched uh, customers in the stores on the Amazon app, ordering from the competitor. Um, and he knew what needed to be done. He knew to unleash the human magic of those people, to engage them in a deeper sense of purpose, to make them want to sell. He had a lot of things he needed to change. Um, but he focused them, he narrowed the thing, he took away all the bureaucratic nonsense that made their jobs difficult. Um, and he turned that company around in, uh, I think it was just almost nine years, um, to a, an incredible service-oriented, purpose-driven machine. Ooh. The stock price was hovering around 11 when he got there. It was right around 100 bucks when he left. Um, so there are, there are lots of examples. Um, my book, to be honest, the, to be honest, is a book of heroes. It's not a, I did not want to write about the villains, the Theranos and the Wells Fargo and the Volkswagen. I, we're tired of those stories. We don't need to hear them anymore. Um, I wanted to write about the leaders we'd all want to work for, the leaders we want to hire to be our boss, uh, and to show that there are plenty of leaders out there leading with integrity, with truth, with justice, with purpose, facing crisis, facing hard moments uh, in ways that we'd want to follow them. And so my book is a blueprint for what those leaders did and how they did it. Mm. Um, Ron, tell me a little bit more about your book. So there is this blueprint, but what can I get? What type of persona should be reading your book? Is it Everybody. any type of leader or there is a specific? Any, I made sure it's for every leader. It's not just for enterprise leaders. Every section, every part of the research we found, we wrote for both individual contributors and lower level leaders and also enterprise leaders. So there's, there, we, I, I left no stone unturned. If you want to be more trustworthy, and we all should, I made sure everybody and every chapter ends with, here's what you go do now. Uh, so I, th there's nobody can walk away from this book and say, I don't know what to do to be more trustworthy. Uh, I don't know how to earn the trust of my people. I don't know how shape a purpose-driven environment. Um, I, you know, years and years and years of work and research went into this to make sure. Um, and people can, we, if you want to meet all the heroes and hear their own stories and their own words, we did a TV series. So I, when we did all the interviews um, of most of the heroes, I knew I wouldn't be able to use all the material. So I thought there's a book has a website, to be honest.net. Okay. And on that website, there is a TV show called Moments of Truth. And it's 15 episodes of all the folks, all the heroes in the book, and even some other heroes that weren't in the book, um, telling you how they do it. Uh, so you can hear in their own words uh, what they did to shape environments of greater performance. 
I, I love this idea. So in the website, to be honest.net, I will find the videos with the interviews of these, uh, these CEOs. Uh, so this is one way to reach to some of the some of your wisdom. So how else can people reach you out, Ron? LinkedIn, uh, another website? Follow me on LinkedIn, please. Um, and also uh, my, my firm website, Navalent, N-A-V-A-L-E-N-T.com. Uh, we have a treasure trove of white papers and videos and training programs um, and uh, articles, blogs on all facets of leadership, leading a team, shaping a culture, you know, setting priorities, setting strategies. So we've, you know, we've, we're celebrating our 19th birthday this year. So we've got a lot of ideas that we've formed over the years and you can find them all there. Ron, it was really lovely to have this interview together. I, I think a lot of the people from listening to the Growth Hacking Culture podcast are going to benefit from your insights. Thank you very much. And, and really, I appreciate so much that despite the fact that you are busy and that you, that you have such a big recognition in the area of leadership that you have come to, the, uh, to our podcast. Thank you very much, uh, Ron. Well, Yvonne, thanks for having me. I appreciate your work. Thanks so much. Mm. Thank you. <laughs>